Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com and enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle, with my co-host, Drew Youngdike. Today, we have a very unique podcast and, and a couple of special guests. We're going to be talking about illegal cannabis grows on public lands. And, and for that today, we have Jackie Riccio and Rich McIntyre, and they are the chief employees and experts on illegal cannabis grows and run an organization called CROP. It's the Cannabis Removal on Public Lands Project. And uh, let's just start out with a little bit of bio for for Rich after we say hello. Hi, hi Rich and Jackie. How are you all doing today? Very well. Good to see you guys. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, and so Rich is a director of the CROP Project. He's worked uh, around the Northwest mostly, it looks like. He's worked for the American Land Conserver- uh, Conservancy uh, during the Klamath Basin Water Wars, apparently. Um, he's a uh, he served on presidential campaign staffs and ran a U.S. Senate campaign. He's, a, he's an expert in this uh, subject. Um, it, this crop itself has been covered by the Atlantic NPR Morning Edition, uh, the Associated Press, many others. And Rich is the leader of this organization. And then we have Jackie. And Jackie is a, a naturalist, basically of all types. She's been a, a wildlife biologist, biologist, an archaeologist, a backcountry horse packer. And a, and a co-founder of the Cannabis for Conservation, um, and, and now she works for CROP. Jackie, what's your title with CROP again? I'm sorry. I'm the Regional Field Director. Awesome. So this is a very interesting subject. I've, I've heard about it on a few different, you know, from a few different angles. I've heard some podcasts from some other people, some law enforcement officers dealing with this. It, it's really a threat to our public lands. And um, it's going to be an interesting dive and we're, we're lucky to have the two of you. So thanks for being here. And then one of the ways we always start this podcast is to talk about what we've been doing outside. This is NWF outdoors. And so of course we love the outdoors and, and we always talk about a little bit what everybody's been doing. So we'll start with you, Jackie, what have you been up to lately? Well, actually I was, um, I was just up a mountain this weekend. I, I get out and I backpack as much as possible. And, uh, the California wildfires have stunted that to an extent recently. Um, but, uh, like you said, in, in, for my bio, I, I also was a backcountry horse packer. So I've got, um, I've got five horses, so I get out with them as much as I can as well. Awesome. How about you, Rich? Well, let's see. I am an avid fly fisherman, and I went steelhead fishing on Saturday, and I got three steelhead between 27 and 30 inches, all wild fish, floated 13 miles of of the Rogue River. So it was an exceptionally beautiful day. It was one of those last warm days of autumn. The colors on the Rogue are just spectacular this time of year. Saw a lot of eagles, saw black bear. It was magical, as it usually is. Excellent. Let's go to you, Drew. What have you been doing? Last weekend, I was able to get out on a little uh, lake inside one of uh, Michigan's state uh, recreation areas, uh, public land. Um, I actually got the the maiden voyage of my little kind of two-person that he uses a one-person inflatable boat that I can pack in my backpack. Um, So I I found out I need an anchor with that because the wind just kind of blows it all over the lake. Um, But I was fly fishing for uh, largemouth and bluegills. Didn't catch any. Had a few nibbles, and I had a uh, I had a large mouth take one of my one of my favorite flies for <laughs> for both of those species, a little uh, zonker um, that he just broke right off. But that was that was the closest I got to actually catching anything. But learned a little bit about my new craft and uh, what I need to get for it before next summer. 
Excellent. Well, it's fall, obviously. So a lot of us are thinking about hunting. I've been out. Uh, I took a, f- a friend who had never hunted before and, and helped him harvest a, a cow elk last week. And now I'm uh, working on uh, my boy and I will be heading out this weekend and my boy's never harvested an elk yet. So we're going to be working on him this year, uh, this week, and looking forward to some wild, healthy meat. Hopefully we can make that happen. Um, so good times outside. Let's let's dump jump in a little bit here. I think a lot of folks hear this and they're like, "Wow, this, you know, it, it's a it's a little bit enigmatic." They're kind of like, "Wow, there's there's a big problem with this." You know, you it's something you don't necessarily think is happening out there on the landscape, and obviously it's purposefully hidden. Um, so uh, let's just jump in a little. Either either Rich or Jackie, just just tell us about this issue broadly, and and you know what is the issue and how big is the problem. So for, I'll start Jackie and then I'll let you jump in. So for two or three decades, there have been trespass grows on public lands. And as you mentioned, they're usually out of sight, out of mind. Uh, They have not been on the public radar screen because both of the locations that they are grown in and because the lack of political will to actually address the problem. There are, in California alone, there are thousands of trespass grows. Those trespass grows exist in Colorado and Washington and Oregon and a couple of other states as well. They are profoundly damaging to the environment, wildlife, fisheries, uh, air, water, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, as it goes by. But the bottom line is that um, it's a it's a serious problem. Uh, there are as I mentioned, thousands of those sites, most of them have never been restored. A lot of them have been busted. They contain toxics and poisons that continue to slaughter and kill wildlife on a landscape level uh, and pollute and pollute and pollute public water supplies. So bottom line is it's a huge problem. It is just now starting to get addressed. And one of the principal objectives of the crop project early on has been to raise the public understanding of that problem explain what it is how it is who does it in this case it's mostly it's mostly cartels they're mostly cartel grows and help explain the dangers that exist on public land around those around those grows and then finally you know last but not least working on working on policy at both the state and the federal level uh, to address that problem and solve it i'll talk a little bit about the um just the kind of way in which these grows are eradicated. So there's multiple steps to, to, first of all, locating these sites. Many of them are just kind of stumbled upon or reported, um, but there's not enough resources to, to be able to map all of them um, at the moment. However, California is supposedly um, going to be doing more of that um, in the coming year, and we should have um, a more accurate number of them. Nobody knows exactly how many there are, currently in California. And um, new sites are, are always being activated. Um, and so law enforcement will first identify a site and do some reconnaissance and um, you know assess the situation. And then that's followed by an eradication, which is also known as day zero, um, in which the, the plants are chopped. Um, they call it whack and stack. So um, everything's cut down and um, the growers are detained. And uh, following that, it basically just becomes um, a site in the backlog that's awaiting uh, what we call reclamation, which is not actually restoration. Uh, Reclamation is basically a glorified cleanup of the trash and camping materials that are at the sites. And um, it's it's not as um, intensive or impactful as restoration. Restoration obviously involves soil remediation, um, you know, replanting of native vegetation. And so really California only has the resources right now to do reclamation. And so these sites, um, you know, they're very toxic sites in these wilderness areas. And it's, it's awful because there's not enough, there's not enough resources to actually do the restoration that's required. And secondly, many of these sites are actually located in designated wilderness areas where restoration isn't even allowed. Um, so you have these pristine environments that are being contaminated um, that some of which cannot be restored and some of which do not have the resources to be fully restored. That, that was going to be my question is what types of, of lands are these grown on, whether that was wilderness areas or BLM or state public lands? 
Um, as far as location, are these generally near trails where hikers would stumble into them, or is it primarily backcountry where you're going to have mostly likely, uh, for instance, backcountry hunters or somebody searching for a, a backcountry stream stumble into them? Go ahead, Jackie. Um, yeah, I mean, most of them are not actually on a trail. Most of them are down a ravine, up and over two hills, and in a pocket where people are not going to get to. Um, with that being said, though, many hunters also like spots like that. Um, and so your average hiker may not bump into them um, if they're staying on a designated trail, you know, in a national forest, in a wilderness area. Um, but your hunter, you know, hunters, um, absolutely bump into them. I've personally been on hunting trips where we have had, uh, people bump into growers that are, that are, you know, guarding their crop. Um, and it's a scary and intense situation when that happens. Um, but to answer your question uh, more fully, yes, these grows occur on pretty much any public land. Our focus specifically right now is on federal public lands, but there are, um, some grows on, on state public lands. Um, they're in mainly national forest, um, and designated wilderness areas are within, um, within national forests. But of course there are some on BLM lands, um, and there's, there's definitely some in national parks. We've seen that, um, in California, we've seen that in Sequoia Kings National Park. Um, they're becoming very emboldened. These drug trafficking organizations are very, very emboldened, um, and, and going, beginning to go into areas where, where more people are, such as national parks, you know, a, a much more visited area than say a designated wilderness area. Um, and so it's definitely, um, becoming more of a public safety issue than in previous years. One of the things that I wanted to mention, uh, on what Jackie said is that, um, most of the, most of the growers, most of the uh, most of the cartel growers are armed. So when a hunter stumbles across a trespass grow and he's out with a shotgun for grouse, or he's out with a thirty odd six for deer or elk, he is generally looking down the working end of an AK forty seven. So you're outgunned. It's the same problem law enforcement faces. We have people in our advisory board who have been in gun battles with uh, who have been in gun battles with cartels at growth sites before so jackie is correct it's unusual it is unusual but it's certainly not unheard of for just hikers and recreationalists to stumble across trespass groves because people like to go into remote areas and and see what's there um it is it is more frequent that it occurs with hunters and even fishermen and even fishermen sometimes and that is uh that, that's that's a very very scary situation. It has essentially created areas of national forest, certainly in California, that are simply no go areas where people are encouraged not to hunt, not to fish, not to recreate. Tribes are encouraged not to go there and exercise their gathering rights, and uh, you know that 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 grates on us, and it's one of the reasons why we started this project in the first place. Do you, do you have an estimate of the acreage that has been taken out of? public use then um, through those areas, whether it's recommended or the actual acreage covered by the grows? Yeah, it's an, it's a, well, first of all, first of all, that's an excellent question. It's a question we get a lot. The short answer is, you know, going back to what Jackie said before, there are thousands of grow sites, but we don't know exactly, we don't know exactly how many because there has not been extensive mapping done. That's one of the things that we've been working on funding for. Um, and, and, there, and therefore it's sort of hard, it's sort of hard to extrapolate the rest of that. I mean, I th what we can say for sure is that I can think of, I can think of half a dozen national forests in Northern California, Six Rivers, Klamath, uh, Shasta, Trinity, uh, where there are large sections where people are advised not to go because of existing trespass grow activities and uh, either existing or past uh, uh, interactions with armed growers. Wow. What about what about states? I mean, it sounds like you guys are focused a lot on the West Coast, and obviously the climate there is really advantageous for for you know growing things outside a little bit more than maybe the interior states with with lots of public lands. But is this happening across the country? And and talk about you know the national scale of this. Sure. So um, yeah, trespass grows are not unique to California. But we far and away have most of them. Probably eighty to eighty five percent of the trespass grows in the United States. Are located on the national forest in the BLM lands of Colorado. I mean, as an example, we estimate that uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 50% of all the black market 
cannabis that's produced in California is produced on those public lands. So that gives you a sense of the scale, right? Wow. So uh, two thirds of the cannabis consumed in California is still black market. Half of that's coming from public lands. That's a lot of weed, and that's a lot, and that's a lot of it, and that's a lot of acreage as well. One of the things that we're working on right now is funding for the Forest Service to uh, to do and to do to actually uh, use a uh, uh, to use a technique that they've developed to map most of the grow sites in the state. We actually use that technology to take the press into a grow site on the Shasta Trinity Forest last October that resulted in those articles on NPR and Atlantic um, and uh, Associated Press that you mentioned earlier in the program. You know, you, what about, you mentioned a term yeah, there okay. about um, the the black market production. Um, you're in California, Aaron's in Colorado, I'm in Michigan. Um, I think all three states where, you know, marijuana is recreationally legal, if, if I'm correct, has has the has the legalization and um, you know legalization as well of being able to grow at some level uh, legally within some of these states and I don't know the California regulations um, but has that reduced any of these in any way has has the legal demand or legal ability to to grow reduce the demand for the black market illegal grow activities. I'm going to let Jackie answer most of this question, but uh, but on the front end, I'll say no. Demand continues to increase. Supply continues to outstrip demand. I mean, ultimately, the only way this is going in is when there's national legalization and everyone can either grow weed or there are dispensaries on the corners where you can go and buy it. Until then, the demand for it is extremely high and, uh, uh, and, the, and the dark market uh, continues. Jackie, you want to finish that up? Yeah, uh, so COVID has not been helpful to the trespass grow issue whatsoever. Um, people are staying home, people are consuming more cannabis. Um, so that demand has actually increased. And also there's just a general lack of law enforcement, um, specifically forest service law enforcement out on public lands this year. Um, so just the lack of their presence alone um, has resulted in the increase in activation of public land sites. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, the legal market in, in California, I would agree with Rich. I would say that, you know, it hasn't really um, helped the um, public land grow issue much. Um, it, it's hard to say, though. I mean, these numbers are very hard to ascertain. And um, legalization, though, for sure, has stressed the cannabis market. Um, and so many legal growers, you know, um, have to continue to operate in the black market in order to stay afloat in the legal market. Um, and some of them, because of the challenges associated with becoming licensed and the complicated process that that entails, um, simply have decided to not participate and have kind of, uh, you know, they kind of have this cashing out perspective. Um, and, and that includes um, the drug trafficking organizations or the, the quote unquote cartels. Um, so, this is mainly an issue for um, for drug trafficking organizations. Trespass grows are largely not operated by your local mom and pop grow or your legacy grower. You know that's been growing for forty years since the since the sixties. You know, um, it's mostly these larger international drug trafficking organizations that are smuggling in uh, extremely toxic pesticides that are cultivating in excess that have no connection to the land or to the communities that um, we cherish in California. And it, it's, it's virtually comparable to, you know, comparing, you know, ivory poaching to subsistence deer hunters. It's just a completely different part of the cannabis industry. Um, and it's really important that we separate um, our cultivators, even if they're not licensed, those that are in process to be licensed and those that have done it on their private land um, from these DTO growers on public lands. One thing I wanted to do is an ad, I wanted to mention as an add-on to that that's pretty important. I gave you the numbers on the, the uh, percentage of black market cannabis being grown on public lands in California, which was uh, somewhere around 50%. We believe that up to 80% of that is being exported to other states. So it goes back to the original question. There's not enough supply in other states. A lot of that weed's ending up on the streets of Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, um, and unfortunately, the 
the garbage that they use, the toxics, the toxics that they use, the banned pesticides, the banned herbicides that they use that slaughter wildlife are uptaken by the plant as well. So those chemicals, those chemicals are not only slaughtering wildlife on a landscape basis, they're also poisoning unsuspected users across the country. Let's talk about that a little. I mean, you know, we talked about, obviously, we have a lot of hunter and angler listeners, and that's our primary audience. And, and obviously, for a hunter or an angler who's out there in the woods and running into these kind, kind of folks, that's, that's pretty scary and dangerous. But also, let's talk about the environmental impacts. Um, I can imagine when you're talking about these toxic chemicals, you know, you live in California and a lot of this in the West Coast. We have salmon and, and steelhead streams and, and recovery areas. Um, and beyond that, you know, if, a, if an elk or a deer goes and drinks out of one of these streams and ingests this stuff, what are some of the implications of that for, for the fish and wildlife out there? So I tell you what, I'll do the fish part and I'll let uh, Jackie do the terrestrial part of it. So from a fishery standpoint, it's a complete freaking disaster. They are tapping, these growers are tapping into high altitude streams, a lot of which are spawning and rearing streams for endangered salmon and steelhead and not a lot of water there to begin with the riparian areas are generally fairly small um, and they are getting dewatered at a rapid rate we estimate we estimate that over eight billion gallons of water a year are stolen to grow uh, illicit cannabis and the results of that the results of that are dramatic i think we are looking now we are now firmly looking at the extinction the California coho primarily as a function of trespass grows because those high altitude natal streams and spawning streams that they depend upon have been have been dry have been dried up across the range. And of course, if they're unfortunate enough to actually show up in a stream and spawn, and there happens to be a trespass grower there, that they're going to end up they're going to end up on a plate because uh, these folks are not exactly steeped in conservation values when it comes to hunting and fishing. Those sites are. Filled with are filled with uh, poached animals and skeletons and racks. But back to the fishery issue for a second. Um, uh, I, we we are now firmly facing additional listings of uh, endangered, threatened, and sensitive salmon and steelhead throughout California. And trespass grows are a primary uh, are a primary culprit in that uh, in that in that in that condition. That's Jack, do you want to talk terrestrial? Yeah. Um, and of course, too, other, you know, there's other compounding factors in addition to trespass growth, climate change, habitat destruction, sure. general disturbance. Um, when you compound that with with trespass grows, um, it's really a problem for both aquatic and terrestrial wildlife. Um, as far as terrestrial wildlife, I mean, we have seen such an intense bioaccumulation of these toxicants and wildlife populations, it's not even funny. I mean, uh, let's just talk about rodenticides for a second. So the term is second generation anticoagulant rodenticides. It's rat poison, which is mainly being used at these sites. Um, animals love to gnaw on young plants. You know, that's like the most nutritious part is when they're young, um, they've got lots of essential elements. Um, and animals know that. So um, the young plants, the beginning planting stages are very vulnerable to herbivory. Um, and so bait blocks of this rat poison are put out at these sites to not only poison wildlife, but, but to, to generally attract it. Um, so there's like this death ring that happens at these trespass groves where animals are attracted to the bait and then those animals are attracted to the smell of dead animals and trash and food. Um, that's going on. So um, the, the, the second generation ARs, um, as they're commonly called, um, are extremely toxic for a number of reasons. So the first generation was warfarin. That was the first generation of, of rodenticides, um, which did the same thing, but they're not nearly as toxic as the second generation. So we saw small mammals develop a resistance to warfarin, um, which is why they developed the more toxic second generation rodenticides. Um, and without getting too sciencey on it, um, it basically interferes with the natural cycle of blood clotting with coagulation in wildlife. So when an animal ingests enough of this, um, it interrupts their vitamin K cycle and they internally hemorrhage slowly and die, um, which is not only an awful way to die, but um, 
it's extremely toxic throughout the throughout the food web. So if you have a small animal, for example, that goes and eats this bait block, then you have a raptor that comes in and eats the small mammal or a fox. Then those animals start to accumulate the same toxins because it can be passed through ingestion. Um, it can also be passed through the placental barrier um, from mother to fetus. Um, we've seen that in Pacific fishers um, to a great extent here in the range. Um, and so it, it, it ends up being this whole bioaccumulation throughout California like we've never seen before. Um, and so second generation ARs right now um, have been documented in 70% of northern spotted owls, which are a federally listed endangered species. Um, over 80% in Pacific fishers, which are a candidate species for the ESA. And over 92% of mountain lions now across the state in California, which are an apex predator, Okay, so everything below them, you know, has traveled up to them, uh, is now testing positive for odenticides. And some of that, yes, is from um, other agriculture using bait blocks in Southern California, but a lot of mountain lions throughout California have been poisoned directly from trespass for odenticides. Um, and so that's obviously a big problem for hunters because it's supposed to be this very clean source of meat, this clean source of protein that you're harvesting from wild lands, which are being impacted by uh, rodenticides from urban areas that are being brought in. Um, and it's awful. And now California has actually restricted these rodenticides. So they are, they are restricted. You have to, you know, qualify basically to use these. Um, of course, trespass growers are not going through that process, but um, I, I believe at this point, there have been two black bears that have been harvested that have tested positive for, uh, for high levels of second generation ARs, which, of course, if people consume will then um, contaminate them as well, be toxic for them and for their families. Um, and also, believe it or not, uh, mule deer, one mule deer buck has been um, tested, at least I think at this point, there might be more. Um, but these are just the people that are getting their meat tested. This is not everybody. So there's probably a lot more of it going on. Um, and that's really, it, it's really scary and it's really awful because um, the extent of this is just, it's so, it, it's so extensive. Um, and it, it's really impacting people's ability to harvest healthy, sustainable wild meat. It's impacting populations and already declining populations of wildlife. And it's just, you know, really been devastating to the ecosystems in general. For a little bit of perspective on this, one of the, the bad boys is carboferrin, which Jackie can talk about more if, if, if you're interested, but, but, but a half teaspoon of carboferrin will kill a 600-pound black bear dead. Murad um, Gabriel, who is one of the scientists who's done a lot of work on uh, the mortalities associated with trespass grows, tells the story of finding a dead black bear next to a trespass grow and a fly landed on it and 10 seconds later fell off dead that's how toxic this stuff is that's wow. how easy it is how easy it is to spread and those growers now are weaponizing are weaponizing those chemicals uh to uh to target to target law enforcement those chemicals by the way are being smuggled in from mexico and central america but a lot of them ironically are still being made in the united states even though they can't be used here it's the old ddt story you know it's it's too dangerous for us but by all means let's ship it off to the developing world and let them use it that's finding its way back into the forest of california the forest of the west and the food chain and the food that hunters are, and, and anglers are collecting on public land. Now, I think our listeners have, have often heard us talk about why, at least us individually, why NWF um, encourages hunters to voluntarily use non-lead ammunition um, because of that transfer through the food chain. You know, if we shoot a deer um, and, and the gut pile stays out there, we don't want a raptor to come there and get that. So I think our listeners will certainly understand that, that chain effect. Um, what can hunters do? You mentioned that that's been found in some of the mule deer that have actually been tested. Um, if a hunter is is hunting, you know, in California in a wilderness area, and they want to get their, you know, say mule deer tested, is is that a tough process to go to through? Is is that pretty cumbersome, or is that something that if a hunter um, is worried that that may be the case, that they can actually get their mule deer tested? I wouldn't say that it's it's cumbersome. Um, it is a little bit expensive. 
Um, but it's worth it to me. I, I would suggest if any, anyone hunting um, in certain national forests, you know, uh, Mendocino, Shasta Trinity, uh, Six Rivers, uh, Klamath, Lassen, you know, just Tahoe National Forest, Stanislaus, um, you know, many of them in California. If you're hunting anywhere between, I'd say, 3,000 to 7,000 feet in elevation, I would get trained tested. Um, those are prime growing areas for people. Um, there's a diversity of labs that do tissue sampling um, or that can do liver samples on your meat. And even if it costs you a little bit of money, um, I would highly recommend it. Of course, it's awful that hunters have to be doing this. I mean, it, the whole point of hunting is to acquire, um, you know, a sustainable meat and have that intimate connection with your meat, with your food. Um, and that is just being tainted in California. You know, our deer population this year, it's, it's awful. It's, you know, estimated at 458,000. It's a severely, severely depressed population of mule deer. And trespass grows aren't helping that at all. It's not helping people that, to feel, um, you know, like they can access these remote areas to go and hunt. Um, it's a major public safety issue and it's a major environmental issue. I mean, hunters really need to, to get on board and, and support our efforts because, um, you know, it's a major threat to that lifestyle and that way of life. Heck of a lot of layers to this. As you all are talking, I'm sitting here thinking of, you know, tons more questions and, and ways that, that this affects a lot of things. But one of the things I wanted to back up with too, is just how the heck did you two get engaged in this? Like, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem like somebody goes to school for this or, you know, what, what, what gets you going on, on this kind of an issue? I, I mean, I, I could assume, but I, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. So about uh, three and a half years ago, I was poking around communities in Northern California. One of the things our, our nonprofit community governance partnership does is establish community partnerships around large environmental problems that are not being addressed. And so I was meeting with communities in Northern California, Humboldt, uh, Humboldt, uh, Mendocino, Trinity County. And I knew about trespass grows. I knew they've been a problem and I'm always offended by that kind of stuff, whether it's a dried up river or, uh, or what we're talking about. Um, and I found that those communities were, those communities were, were knew about it. They were concerned about it. No one else was addressing it. Um, and the politicians had kind of washed their hands of it. So, and, 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 and the bottom line is that the most, the vast majority of decision makers and the vast majority of the public did not know about this problem. So we saw, we saw a problem that needed to be solved. We saw no one else addressing it. You know, our staff, uh, our partners in this, by the way, are the California Wilderness Coalition, Cal Wild. Um, and so on our staff, we have a lot of deep experience in environmental issues, in campaigns, uh, landscape conservation campaigns, political campaigns. And we decided to put those talents to work to try to solve this seemingly intractable problem. And a big part of that was simply public education, decision-maker education. This is what's going on, just like this. These are the effects, and what and what ultimately can we do about it? So now we've moved, you know, now we've moved in the direction of while we're continuing to elevate the problem, we've moved in the moved in the direction of actually developing policy and developing legislation to solve this problem once and for all, because this is not just going to go away. There are growth sites out there that were busted five years ago. That were never reclaimed that are now being that are now being uh, used again. So until this is solved, until we get more Forest Service law enforcement on the ground in the national forest, until we get these sites cleaned up, until we clamp down the poisons coming into this country and the companies in this country that are producing them, this problem is not going to go away. Yeah, and and um, so we go back to your original question. Um, I live in Humboldt County. So I live in kind of the cannabis mecca in California, kind of the OG County where cultivation happened. And um, I have um, always been involved in wildlife. That was what I, that's what I'm formally educated in. So I was a biologist and naturally just being in this place, those two kind of melded together. Um, and I wanted to create um, some kind of a conservation program for farms to um, be able to participate in wildlife management and effective land management at scale regionally. Um, and so 
I formed a, a small nonprofit called Cannabis for Conservation, and I started um, working uh, with Murad Gabriel from the Integral Ecology Research Center. Um, and we started collaborating a bit on different ways in which we could help support their efforts. And that's how I met Rich. I attended a community organizer training that the Community Governance Partnership puts on, where we teach environmentalists how to organize, how to analyze and identify the power, um, and how to generate change for the environmental movement. Um, and uh, I, I met Rich there, and, and we were working on the same issue. Um, and so we decided to team up and, and it's been um, a great collaboration so far. And so now I work for Prop and uh, we're both fighting the good fight for our public lands. Jackie's coming up on her two year anniversary with the project. That's terrific. Um, I, I have to ask, you mentioned as well the reluctance to address it politically. Where does that reluctance come from? It seems like something, you know, affecting so many different facets of of life in, in California, particularly on our public lands, where, where is that reluctance coming from? So, I th you know, I think I think you put your finger on something when you said, man, there are so many layers to this and it's so complicated. It is. It is complicated and it's hard to explain. And until crop came along, I don't think anyone was doing a particularly good job of elevating or explaining it. So sometimes profound problems that are in the backcountry, as you guys know, tend to get ignored and tend to get swept under the carpet. So we shined a bright light on that and changed it. It is a difficult problem, and especially in Northern California, where there is a history of cannabis, cannabis production, when you start talking about things like increased enforcement, you start talking about National Guard helicopters going in to help take out the materials, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a shudder that goes through communities sometimes when they hear that stuff. So so there's been both a lack of political will as a function of a lack of understanding of the problem, a little bit, I think, of the cannabis culture that's existed in California for a long time. And how are we going to how are we going to parse this? How are we going to you know, how are we going to explain this? So so the so the bottom. So we've tried to boil it down into a handful of key talking points that are easy for people to understand. And the nice thing about this project is that it's a bipartisan project. It doesn't, you don't have, you know, it doesn't matter who you're going to vote for for president. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, independent, libertarian, whatever. Nobody wants this shit going on in their national forest. They just don't. And so we've been really, really fortunate in that we have found receptive audiences in Democratic congressional offices and Republican congressional offices in this in, in in bipartisan offices at the state capitol as well. So it's one of those rare things in today's world that um, where there actually is, where something bipartisan actually is possible. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has received some of the attention that it has is because that's a bloody rare thing nowadays. You know, I we couldn't imagine uh, one uh, another place that would have such a detrimental effect on so many aspects of just even public life, right? If it's public lands, if it's water, if it's wildlife, if it's a human health issue with, um, or, or a wildlife issue out there eating these poisons or poisoning the wildlife that, that wouldn't garner some significant attention from, from folks and, and, and the desire to do something about it. I think that's a good segue too, to, to start talking a little bit about, about what are the policy, you know, pushes that we could make? Um, what are the things that we could be, uh, you know, advocating for with decision makers to help address this problem? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is, you know, write your congressmen, write your state representatives and help educate them. Make, make sure that they are aware of the problem. Make sure that, you know, help help explain to them how serious the situation is. We have we've been working um, in D.C. with uh, Congressman Jared Huffman for a long time, who's been sort of leading on this issue over a number of years. On the Republican side, uh, Doug LaMalfa, uh, whose district includes the Lassen and Klamath National Forest, uh, they have proposed a, a new piece of legislation called the Plant Act, which is likely to be introduced on the House floor right after the new Congress is, uh, is uh, seated. That act calls for $25 million a year for five years in a row to directly address reclamation of public roads on private, on uh, of of trespass grows on public lands, and also to increase Forest Service presence, uh, law enforcement presence on those on those public lands. We feel pretty good about that. We think it's got a good chance of passage. 
there's the federal legislation. We've also been working with the Forest Service. We were able to get language into the last Forest Service appropriations, directing them to come up with a plan to actually address this problem. That's never been directed in uh, funding in funding sources before. So directive language and appropriations directing them to do that. Their next appropriations come up in March and April. We'll be uh, working with Congress and with our representatives to try to get uh, uh, to try to get appropriations through the Forest Service budget and the BLM budget to address the problem as well. Finally, last but not, last but not least, there are some state programs in California, primarily related to forest health, um, that have applications for this program. Trespass grows cause wildfires, um, among other things. Uh, so uh, we have legislative vehicles that we're working on right now to try to actually fund, to actually try to fund the problem. And the support of and, and the support of your listeners is critical. So again, help educate your decision maker. Cropproject.org has our website, has all that information on it. It has all the data. It has also the science papers. It has exceedingly disturbing videos that move people. You know, when you see a Pacific fisher flopping around on the ground. Or you see a dead black bear next to a grow site, it 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 affects people on a visceral level, especially if they're especially if they're outdoors people, uh, as most of as most of your listeners are. So elevate it. Don't be afraid to talk about it. And when the legislation is going to happen, support it directly. Write letters and say, I need your, you know, we need your vote on this legislation. We'll be certain to uh, provide the link to that in our show notes on this as well. Um, one question, and, and if you're comfortable answering it, we've talked about the danger to hunters and anglers stumbling upon this, a danger to wildlife. Have, have you felt in your advocacy on this and any sense of that as well from being, you know, pub- publicly bringing this to light? Um, I'll speak for myself and then I'll let Jackie speak. Yes. <laughs> I think I think anytime you take on the bad guys, you know, you've got to you have a target on you. So, you know, we're careful to try to not try to not give out our home addresses. Um, when we're speaking in public, you know, I, I try to maintain some situ- situational awareness about uh, about what about what is going on. Um, I think that's likely to increase, not decrease as we move closer to as we move closer to success on this as well. Jackie, you live in the middle of it. What do you think? Yeah, um, I have definitely been uncomfortable at times, um, especially because it can be a complicated issue. Um, just living in a cannabis community, I mean, a lot of legacy growers did used to grow on public lands. Of course, they weren't using the toxicants that we're finding out there. Um, but you, it's been complicated to thread the needle sometimes just for me and the work that I do. Um, but in terms of feeling uh, safe, as in physically safe, um, because of the, the work that we do, yes. I mean, I've definitely felt um, uh, uneasy at times, but this fight is, is totally a fight that I'm so glad to be a part of. I've always been an environmental warrior. I will continue to be, I will continue to fight for wilderness no matter what, even if it compromises my own safety. Um, I, I care way too much about, um, our natural world, about our home planet, about the wildlife that doesn't have a voice to speak for themselves and for the communities that, try to live the, the hunting and angling and subsistence lifestyle um, to, to get up this fight because I'm afraid. Um, and I think that Rich would probably say the same. When we took the, uh, when we took the press into that Trinity site last fall, uh, we did not go in alone. We went in with uh, heavy law enforcement presence as well to go into a site that had already been busted because there were other sites in that area. In fact, if I could tell a quick anecdotal story, I blew my Achilles out and I could not go down to the growth site. So I stayed up where the cars were parked while, uh, while um, uh, other folks took the, uh, uh, took the reporters down. And as I, was sitting in, as I was sitting in the car waiting, I heard a car come up the road and um, I was actually hunkered down on my seat. I was trying to take a little nap and as I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw a pickup truck with a guy driving down the road. Um, but that's interesting. Odd hunting season hadn't started. There was no hunting season. I didn't think too much about it. Got out of the car, and about 30 minutes later, the same truck went by with three guys in it this time, uh, suspiciously looking like growers with a bunch of bundles in the back of their in the back of their rig. 
and that was and that was at a site that and that was near a site that had been busted. So there is physical, you know, there is physical danger in what we do. And when we're out there as much as is possible, we try to have a law enforcement presence with us just to uh, uh, just to protect us, to protect the people who are working with us and to protect uh, uh, the reporters that are with us as well. And I'd like to just add on to that real quick, too, with, um, you know, I really want to give a shout out to all the people that are actively doing on the ground reclamation, um, the Integral Ecology Research Center, um, the Hay Fork Watershed Center. um, And it's just it's such dangerous work in terms of, you know, um, the toxicants as well. I mean, this stuff is no joke, like we've explained. And these people that are doing these cleanups are constantly putting um, their their physical being and their health on the line um, to help clean up our public lands. So I just wanted to add that. Well, I was going to say, I can imagine that the communities there are probably darn tired of this, you know, in a lot of ways and, and are, are really eager to deal with this. And, you know, Jack, you, you sent me some notes talking about how many different articles and things have been out there. We talked about this a little bit. I mean, it, it, I'm still kind of hung up on, what is it that would, it seems like everybody, the communities, the, the, the legislators, everybody would want to deal with this. It's just kind of a problem all the way around with, from illegal activities to wildlife problems to, you know, to, to, to usurping those who are trying to do it the right way and, and get the appropriate licensing and so on. I mean, is it a, is it a just lack of awareness? I'm still grappling a little bit with, with what it is. It's, it seems like it's so obvious this problem needs to be taken care of. It's also cost. This is a very, very expensive thing to do. To reclaim a site cost about $40,000. And that's without dealing with the toxics. Jackie, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, reclamation, like we said, it's not it's it's not addressing the toxicant issue. So it's just a containment of the toxicants. Um, so if there are toxicants on site, they are contained. Okay, so like they're barreled up, but they're left there um, because it costs about $10,000 to remove one liter of carbapurin. Um, and sometimes there's multiple leaders Incredible. at sites, you know, and, and there's, um, you know, I think the closest place to even, um, get rid of that is in Nevada. So it's just an incredibly expensive process. Um, and, and to go back to, um, your question, Aaron, too, it's just, you know, um, uh, there, the political climate has been very challenging when it comes to increasing enforcement on cannabis, um, simply because trespass grows happen to be cannabis. Um, California has very liberal cannabis policies now. And so there's definitely a reluctance to prosecute. There's a reluctance to do increased enforcement because of, you know, the issues associated with legacy grows being raided um, and communities really being impacted by previous enforcement. Um, but again, it's there's got to be this separation. Trespass growers are not part of the cannabis culture that we know and that we that, that I personally cherish. Um, it's it's so far beyond what any grower would willingly do, I think, to their land. Um, these growers are, you know, like I said, these are the ivory poachers of the cannabis culture. This is not this is not something that can be um, associated with cannabis, really. You know, and, and another thing, it's like it's not about the plant. Right. If you're growing basil on public lands, but you're growing it with pub, with uh, carpet urine and you're putting out rodenticides and you're poaching wildlife. I still think you should be prosecuted. It's not about the cannabis. It's about the way in which it's going down and about the desecration of our public lands. Wow. I mean, uh, I, I guess I would say I commend the two of you uh, for taking this on. This is a, this is a heck of an issue. And I know, you know, I've heard of it a little bit here in Colorado too. Um, I know it's, it's spreading out a little bit. Uh, you know, when you say things like cartels, boy, that sounds ominous. It sounds like, you know, we've got a, a real issue that's really hard to combat and everybody's probably pretty scared to do a lot about it. But thank you, too, for, for you know, being such incredible defenders of, of these public lands and, and helping with a critical issue. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to say anything else, what, what the average citizen can do. If you have names for that legislation or, or any other ways that folks can, can look this up and get engaged, you know, before we leave here to, to get people a little bit more aware of this issue. So I'd encourage them to look at the Crop Project website. Again, cropproject.org. There's some links on there. As I mentioned, after the first of the year, when the new Congress is sworn in, the Plant Act will be introduced. 
there'll be new appropriations to address, hopefully there'll be new appropriations to address it in both the Forest Service and the BLM budget. So the time for your listeners to weigh in with their representatives on actions to deal with this would be right after the first of the year. Mention the Plant Act, which is which is being introduced by Congressman Huffman and LaMalfa. Mention Forest Service and BLM appropriations to deal with the with the trespass grow issue of cannabis on public lands. And make sure that they personalize it. You know, make sure your, your listeners, your listeners have an angle on this that's very, very valuable. They're the users of those public lands. Hey, by the way, that reminds me, I need to give a shout out to backcountry hunters and anglers who are one of the supporters of our projects and endorsed it, endorsed it early on. So there, so there are ways to get involved. We'll be sure to be back in touch with you, give you the names of the bills, and give you some information you can pass along to your listeners after the first of the year to uh, to actually uh, to actually weigh in directly. And I would like to add to, I mean, to all you cannabis consumers out there, if you're going to consume cannabis, please purchase from a licensed dispensary because when you don't know where it comes from, chances are it's coming from a trespass grow. Chances are it's coming from a grow that is poisoned wildlife that is completely decimating our, our river systems here in Northern California. Um, so know where your weed comes from, really know your source, um, you know, get, um, get your medical license, grow it yourself, do whatever you got to do, but just know where it comes from because otherwise you're contributing to the problem. Yeah. And real, and real, and realize that, and realize that that black market weed is poisoning users as well. You know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, most growers, as Jackie was talking about, most growers care about their consumers because they want the consumers to come back. Patels could give a rip. You know, most 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 businesses do not willingly poison their clients. They do because they don't care. Thank you. You know, you know, I know a lot of uh, keyboard conservationists. It's a it's a pleasure to talk to two real conservationists who are who are putting a lot on the line uh, to care for our public lands the way you are. Um, and we both have a lot of friends uh, over at uh, BHA too. So appreciate the shout out to our friends there. Um, thank you very much for for coming on the podcast and talking to us about this important issue. And as I mentioned, make sure uh, listeners that you check out the show notes. We're going to have links uh, to to crop um, as well as uh, several of the stories that they've referenced as well. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. You're welcome. Keep up the good work. Thanks for fighting for our wildlife. Take care, guys. Thank you for the work you guys do. We are. NWF Outdoors.